0: Tonight I'd like to talk about the life of the Buddha. Not so much to pass on information about someone's life, but because I feel that his life story has great symbolic value, has great significance for us too, for our practice, for our life, for what we're doing here. It's said that the Buddha, actually, the Prince Siddhartha Gautama, was born about two and a half thousand years ago, in on the borders on the foothills of the Himalayas, what's Nepal today, just the border between India and Nepal. And uh, a prediction was made when he was born that he would either become a great saint or a great king or Emperor and um, His father liked one part of the prediction But he didn't like the other part He very much wanted him to become a great king And he didn't care so much for having a son that was going to be a great saint And uh, therefore he was very careful in how he was going to educate him And more than anything he brought him up in a very protected environment And um, there's already a parallel. I don't know about everybody's mothers and fathers, but I know of some who would rather have their sons and daughters be great queens or businesswomen or businessmen or something like that than be great saints. figured out that if he would not see the realities of life, he might be uh, well set on his course to become a great king. So I kept him in comfort and luxury and entertainment and good education. And in a way, it's, it's somehow similar to how many of us, certainly not all of us, but how many of us are growing up, how people in general grow up in this society, being quite sheltered quite a lot of pleasure and even though there's also a lot of pain and difficulty um, as much as possible the visible suffering is sort of removed brought out of sight as I mentioned the other day I was 20 when I saw it the first time a dead body Never saw one before. At the same time, I hear there's about five hundred or five thousand. A lot of people killed every week on TV. I don't remember, but it's in the hundreds or thousands of deaths on TV every, you know, per week. But I never saw anybody who died, you know, in the process of dying or death. People are brought to special institutions, put away. And, um, the young prince was quite happy in that surrounding, but something bothered him, mostly wanting to see what was outside the beautiful palace, you know, what was in the city. And he insisted on wanting to go out for a walk or a drive. And finally his father had to agree that he could go, and he had the city cleaned up. He had, remo- had them remove all the old people, all the sick people, all the dirt imagine this in India it was a big job <laughs> and um, you know fixed it all up and then uh, Prince went out in the chariot with his friend the charioteer and uh, everything was great and yet um, he saw a sick person somehow that person had not been removed and he was wondering what that was and he asked his friend the charioteer you know what is this person and he said, a sick person. And the Buddha said, but you know, how come? And uh, Chiruti said, but we all are bound to get sick at times in life. You know, this is the nature of having a human body, of being humans. And he was very puzzled. He had never seen that because immediately they had removed people who were sick. And it said that he went out several times. One time he went out and he saw a very old very very old person and again he was really shocked because all the old people had been removed from the palace and again he asked and was told that uh, most of us if we make it that long that's how we'll end up and uh, he was quite shocked and then on a third trip he saw a dead body and that startled him even more and something woke up in him He started to ponder, he started to think about life which is not what his father was interested in, but he did. And the last time he went out, he saw an ascetic or a monk. He saw a person who was practicing, who was a, a renunciate and who was doing meditation. They had been removed too, because he wasn't supposed to see them. And again, he wanted to know what that was and he was deeply touched when he found out that this you know, this was somebody who had um, chosen a way of life that was dedicated to finding out truth to finding out about reality of what it is to be human, what it is to be alive It's very important for us to see the suffering maybe around us, it's more of a psychological type the depression, the stress, the addiction in our society sometimes um, it's been said that Buddhism is quite pessimistic because it's pointed out so um, clearly that there is suffering there's conflict, there's alienation the difficulties in life and you know, that's not that's not all of life you know, let's not talk about it and yet, it's so very difficult, uh, so very important that we look at that and take it in and then start to look what that brings up in us. For the Buddha, this was so strong that uh, he decided to leave behind the palace and a good life in the palace and search a path of freedom. And in those times, this meant going forth, going into homelessness, being wandering, nun or monk or ascetic, I think quite a tough decision, very much uncertainty. And it seems very important that there's some kind of process like that going on in ourselves too, of waking up and then of letting go, if it's not letting go of all our external situations and circumstances but it's letting go of a sense of looking for comfort and security in our habitual way of being and starting to really question and ask and set new no priorities perhaps become very clear of what matters in life and what doesn't So the Buddha left the palace and he went to see the great masters of his time there was Alara Kalama, who was a great uh, meditation master. He was said to have mastered all the absorptions, the deep concentrations I spoke about on the third day or so. He had mastered all the absorptions of jhanas until uh, up to the seventh. And The Buddha practiced with that teacher and in very little time he realized what the teacher had to teach and to offer and he was invited to teach and he thought that this wasn't quite it and he looked for this other person whose name is Udaka Ramaputra, who was said to be the person in all of India of that time who had the deepest realization in terms of yogic attainment. He had uh, mastered even the eighth jhana or absorption. And the Buddha went there and got the teachings and again mastered the eighth jhana in very little time. And upon which he was invited to sit next to the great teacher and also teach himself. Yet he felt that he had not come to the completion of his path, the final cessation of suffering. Again, you know, we don't know what really happened and what the Buddha's life was like. I think it was a few hundred years later that it was written down for the first time. It's knowing what happens, even over a few weeks, you know, how things can change from person to person. Um, we don't know, but it's interesting because there's always something that it's telling us. In this case, I feel it's telling us something about the practice of deep concentration and of how profound that can be and the fact that, yet, it is not that which liberates. And the Buddha saw that in himself and went on, and he decided to engage in ascetic practices, which is uh, another set of practices that was done in those days in India, actually, until this day, these days as people are practicing those ways, Methods to use willpower and all kinds of ways to bring the mind under control, to bring body functions under control, to somehow subdue the mind, subdue the body. And uh, the Buddha recounts that at one time he was practicing holding the breath. And he was holding the breath no matter what. And it says at some point the air started to come into his ears because the need for air was incredible. And he kept on holding the breath, and the air would come into his eyes, you know, like these sockets would go in and And he kept on with this practice until finally he fainted and they sort of had to come and restore him back to life. So that didn't work. And um, he had practices like he made vows that he would stay in one position whenever the fear would overcome him and he would stay in that position as long as the fear would last Now, we have to picture those North Indian jungles of those days I mean, dense forests with very few people and very small villages and not very many cities in the area and tigers and elephants and king cobras and scorpions and everything right out there so sitting under the tree by night and (laughs) picture it you know there's some roaring thing or something creeping and the fear grips one and the vow to just Stay in that position no matter how long If it would take all night Until the day would break Lying down And fear would grip him He would would put lying down as long as it would take As long as it would last Very uh, Intense Powerful practicing He decided to fast To use fasting And he kept on Cutting down on his food he I think, finally, um, cut down to one grain of rice a day, and then to one grain of rice a week, and then one sesame seed a week, which isn't very much. (laughs) And um, he says at some point that he could, if he would reach to touch his stomach, he would reach, he would hold his, um, what's it called, his spine, he would touch his spine. we don't need to do that kind of practice but we also need impeccability we need courage in practice we need sometimes or quite often to push our limits without being over demanding or without being harsh but really looking what that means we need to challenge our habits not all the time but sometimes every now and then see what that is how that works and more than anything else it takes a long enduring mind as the last Chinese patriarch Su Yun put it I never read his actual biography I only heard it told and um, as things go I don't know if that was that is how it actually happened but it said that he um, became a novice monk in a very early age, maybe still as a kid. And he spent eight years on monastic training. And then he moved to a Zen monastery, a Zen retreat place. And he practiced Zen intensively for 10 years after that, or some length of time. And then at some point he decided to walk to India And he walked to India on foot from China and he walked uh, around Kailash, maybe, you know, doing prostrations like they still do now in Tibet. You know, walking a long distance for months and months. But instead of actually walking, one does one full prostration, completely stretched out, makes a sign and walks, walks those two yards and does another one and signs, and there's another one, and there's still people who do that for months and months, moving, you know, bowing to to the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So he went on this pilgrimage for many years, maybe five years, walking and prostrating in India and elsewhere. And then, back to China he spent many years reciting a mantra or the Buddha's name or something like that I mean, many years as his full-time practice and then again he went back to so many years of then. and with 75 he started to teach and he taught until he was 119 until apparently he got killed by the communists in in uh, I don't know, maybe in Peking or somewhere in Shanghai Um, in the 50s sometimes it is said that when teaching once he declared unfortunately I can't teach you like the great masters of old I don't have that much of a practice myself what I think though you all need to bring to practice and to develop is a long enduring mind and he certainly was an impressive example of that so maybe this is one of the really essential parts of the practice if we want the real benefit we need to take a good look at our priorities and put enormous amounts of energy into the practice wherever that practice takes place in our life Gautama, after many years of ascetic practice, decided that this this was not the path which was good luck for us (laughs) He felt that there was no more energy in his system and he actually needed to eat He needed just enough to eat to get the energy He needed just enough rest to refresh and renew himself and keep his body healthy that is the event where a devotee, her name is Sujata, came and offered milk rice. And whatever the milk rice was like, legend has it that it was the milk rice that was from the milk of a thousand cows or was given to a hundred cows who were milked. It was given to 10 cows who were then milked. It was given to one cow and then milked. And from that milk, the milk rice was made. It was a very special milk rice. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha ate again. And there's still a famous place you can go and look at, at a place near Bokaya near the Naranjana River, where the Buddha, again, took food his five companions who looked upon him as the teacher because he was the toughest in all those aesthetic practices, were really disappointed and they saw that he had given up and they left him immediately, you know, upon seeing him eat. And again, he had made a decision in his life, a decision with far reaching implications. This was how one practiced at that time and he decided that it was not what worked for him and he changed it. Lost his disciples, and when he felt strong again, he sat under a tree somewhere in the area, where apparently today's uh, Bodh Gaya, sat under one of these big, incredible peepal trees. It's called the ficus religiosa. So one finds them in India. Beautiful, huge trees with many, many beings in them you know give shade and coolness and shelter for beings he sat down with the unshakable determination i will sit here and i will not get up until i have completely understood what there is to be understood in life until i've understood the causes of suffering how they arise and i've come to the end of it. Now imagine us you know <laughs> coming in the hall, sitting down and deciding, okay, this time I'm not gonna get up. It's very impressive. Anyway, he was the Bodhisattva, so I don't know if that's different. Yes. It's at that point where he practiced throughout the night when Mara, the personification of all the negative, unwholesome energies and mind states and emotions of heart and mind, attacked. You must have seen these paintings. Very impressive. The Buddha sitting there and all these weird figures, you know, sort of attacking from all the side with anger and hatred and rage. As demons with arrows and clubs and sharp weapons attacking you know, beings with heads of frightening fierce beasts and demons and it was attachment and desire as beautiful people, beautiful beings with pretty bodies and offering nice, enticing music and games and. You know, the pleasant things of life, maybe videos, I don't know what they handle. <laughs> there was ignorance, bewilderment attacking discouragement, confusion, drowsiness. Attacking the form of pitch black darkness, creepy fogs and twilight. The Buddha just sat there, unmoving. It said that he did not conquer all these forces by fighting back or by avoiding them or by controlling them, which must sound familiar by now. He said it transformed them he transformed all the weapons who came flying into flowers and he transformed all these attacks by the power of his wakefulness, of his clear seeing, and by the power of metta. By the power of kindness, acceptance, openness, and love. And again, maybe you have seen the paintings. There's another kind of painting that shows the Buddha sitting under the tree, and they're all the weapons that come flying out at the edge, and then they transform into flower petals that fall down. So much to say for this powerful force of loving kindness. There's an old text that speaks about all the benefits that loving-kindness brings for the practitioner that engages frequently and, and deeply in the kind of practice of loving-kindness. It's actually a really good ad for Metta. It says, one sleeps well and wakes up peacefully. One has no bad dreams. One is lost by humans and protected by the gods fire, poison, and weapons cannot harm one one's mind is easily focused and concentrated Even that sounds good, isn't it? one is calm at the time of death and should one not have attained to freedom one will be reborn into the realms of happiness and peace that's that uh, the Buddha's power of loving kindness very strong and again legend has it that his cousin who always was very jealous and always tried to steal the show from the Buddha and do things to somehow get rid of him at some point he organized this wild elephant it's actually the war elephant of the king and um, he set the elephant up in a very narrow lane where he knew the Buddha would come up the lane for arms round and um, they did whatever needs to be done to put the elephant in a rage so he was really furious and then the Buddha coming down the you know walking up the lane and the elephant charging down the lane and the Buddha saw him coming and um, it said that he he practiced his metta and by the power of metta as the elephant drew closer he slowed slow down you know and sort of <laughs> get a little more peaceful and the closer he came the more peaceful he was and by the time he was right in front of the Buddha he would sort of sit down at his knees at, at his feet it actually says he bowed at his feet um, again whatever really happened I don't know but um, it just simply points out that how powerful a force it is This kindness And that it's a force that transforms It's not the force that opposes and controls and dominates But it's a force that changes things, transforms them So he sat under the tree He sat through the night And his understanding got deeper and deeper the last final attack of Mara was doubt he came up and said who are you to take the right to sit on this spot the spot where all the countless Buddhas of the past had reached enlightenment what gives you the right to sit here and it said that the Buddha simply reached down to the earth and touched the earth with his hand calling up the goddess of earth to witness the hundreds and hundreds of lifetimes he had spent perfecting the parmita perfecting all the beautiful and powerful qualities of an enlightened being perfecting all the qualities we have been developing here cultivating here these days and it's at that point the earth shook and trembled to witness That he had actually the right to be there. That's when Mara vanished. At the crack of dawn, it said, the morning star had just risen. His mind opened completely. Finally, life was fully understood, and he attained to complete freedom and wholeness. His words, profound limitless peace is the Dharma that I have found. Imagine the kind of mind, the kind of being that has come to a place of completely ending all inner suffering, all torment, all conflict, all negativity, all alienation be whole, complete. Like Herman Hesse's description of Siddhartha and his in his book Siddhartha, when Siddhartha and his friend encounter the Buddha. The Buddha, the awakened one, he used to go to the city for alms rounds at dawn in the morning. Siddhartha saw him and recognized him as if a god had pointed at him. He saw humble man in yellow robes carrying the arms ball, walking quietly. Look, Siddhartha whispered to Govinda. This one here is the Buddha. Govinda looked at the monk in yellow robes who seemed to be no different from the hundreds of monks around. Yet Govinda too soon realized this one is him and they followed him and gazed at him the Buddha went his way humble and quiet his face was neither joyful nor sad but it seemed to be smiling inwardly a faint smile not unlike a healthy child but his face his step his hand even every finger of his hand expressed peace expressed completion did not search but it was softly breathing unfolding unfading calm unfathomable peace thus they recognized him his perfect calm his silent being where there was no searching no wanting and no striving for realization only light and peace Siddhartha Sokotama's shoulders his feet his hand He felt that every part of his being was the teaching Was breathing, was shining, was expressing truth This man, this Buddha was genuine, was real He was sane, a saint Never before had Siddhartha felt so much awe, so much love and so much inspiration And it might be a long path. We don't know. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of patience and a long, enduring mind. But it's a wonderful journey. And it's the most meaningful thing we can do in this life. It's the most meaningful thing. A practice the way of life where every step is worthwhile because it's going its light, it's going to its freedom, it's going to its peace. So his words were profound, limitless peace is the Dharma that I found. And he enjoyed the fruit of his enlightenment for seven weeks. He said to have spent one week at different places, again places one can go and see in Vagaya near the tree, the place where he walked up and down. There's kind of lotus is on the floor. There he walked up and down for a week. There's a place where apparently he was sitting for a week, just gazing at the tree, filled with gratitude just for the tree who had sheltered him and somehow had been there when he attained to his realization. The place where he sat and the great storm came and his great serpent serpent Naga came and opened his hood to protect him from the rain and storm for the week. while he had attained to this deep realization he thought that no one would understand what he had found no one would understand what he had discovered and decided to remain silent in the wilderness it's at some point after this time there, after the seven weeks the great Brahma, the great god being Sampati descended from the realms of gods and he approached the Buddha and he said to him there are beings with only little dust on their eyes for their sake out of your great compassion please teach It said that with his divine eye he then surveyed the earth and indeed saw beings with only little dust on their eyes as he put it who might understand who might be willing to listen and understand what he had to say. It is also said that as he looked across the earth, the universe, at the being, he looked with his divine eye, he saw that all beings were desperately looking for happiness, were after nothing else than avoiding suffering and looking for happiness in everything they thought and they said and they did. And yet that because of ignorance, because of not understanding how things really are, they were and they are doing the very thing that kept them away from true happiness, that kept on creating more suffering, more conflict, them. Maybe that's us. But seeing that this was what was happening and also seeing that some might be awake enough to listen, to start to explore for themselves. In seeing that his great compassion arose. The compassion that developed over lifetimes and lifetimes opened and he started to teach. He walked to the nearby city of what's Benares today, where he met his five disciples who had left him. And they saw him come and they said, Let's not even look at him, you know, let's just pretend we don't see him even. You know, the guy we used to follow. And it's said that he came up to them and they were so awed by just his his demeanor, just his appearance that even though they didn't even want to look at him they all bowed to him and they immediately made a seat for him just because there was such a radiance and such a depth of of peace and fulfillment. And um, he actually gave his first sermon there speaking about the middle path of avoiding extremes, extremes of um, torturing oneself and and self-denial and extremes of getting lost in luxuries and the pursuit of pleasure. And he taught what is called the Four Noble Truths. He then kept on walking, wandering through Northern India for 45 years would just go from place to place and teach I think about two or three months of the year just as monks are doing it now he would stay in one place and he would be more into a meditative retreat type of life and then at other times just go from place to place back for arms and teach if he was asked to do so that he gave 85,000 lectures in those 45 years or, or he's uttered kind of very short or long or very long discourses the essence of what he taught is what we practice here we have been practicing here he taught mindfulness, awareness and he taught in the balance, equanimity, the letting go and the accepting, the allowing. He taught the four noble truths. The fact that there's suffering in life, there's conflict and alienation, and that there's tremendous amount of suffering in beings, hearts and minds. And that secondly there's a cause for that there's a cause in our own hearts and minds and it's those unwholesome emotions which we have looked at so often it's not understanding the bewilderment the confusion and from not understanding the reactiveness of aversion and hate and destructiveness and holding on and craving and greed that are really at the root of all suffering. That is what creates suffering in our hearts and minds. But he didn't stop there. He also taught that there was an end. It was possible to come to an end of suffering. It was possible to eventually uproot those defilements, those negative emotions, those unwholesome qualities of mind to find any peace and he also taught the path, the method he also taught what it takes to to realize that he spoke a lot about the true nature of things the impermanence of all composite phenomena of all conditioned things he spoke about the fact that things can't provide a lasting satisfaction no matter what it is no matter how clever we are and how hard we try things might give whatever we need but they don't last and whatever satisfies can't stay because things change we change everything changes so whatever wherever we look for that kind of satisfaction we're going to be disappointed and we're going to suffer he taught the non-self existence the non-independent self existence of things the fact that nothing exists in a graspable substantial way and he taught and pointed out the consequences that come from that pointed out that if we don't understand that and live as if things were permanent as if we could finally somehow control things so that we would forever get it and have it and keep it if we live in a way of grasping at things that we must suffer we're bound to suffer it can't be other. and he pointed out that if we understand the way of the way things are the way we ourselves are and we understand it so deeply that we stop trying to grasp what can't be grasped that we come into tune with the way things are that we understand the reality of things we'll be free suffering will end because we will not create it anymore he was amazing in the range of how he, he expounded on this speaking to different people different characters different um, he spoke to kings and queens he spoke to beggars he spoke to all kinds of people and he used a wide range of stories and illustrations and and he had an incredible brilliant mind in terms of explaining things he was always explaining that same core really but had so many different ways it's of course that, that since he had the divine eye to see where the problem was with people He would understand exactly what each person needs because he could see where they were stuck. So, um, as legend has it, most of the time people didn't take very long to practice. And uh, for many of the people who practiced under him, the path was quite short and quite immediate sometimes. And again, that too is a possibility at any moment, at any point of our life, of our practice. If we really look, we can see how things are. He didn't talk of things that were very very hidden. He was talking of this very reality. The problem being just that we can't quite see what's there into our face. So it's a long journey, and at the same time it's not. It's right here. And both of these aspects to the whole spiritual life he also pointed out very clearly he was also very strong in empowering people he had a vast following but it wasn't from what one can gather it wasn't a a following of some kind of devotees who who um, you know just followed him and did what he said He would give the teachings and send people back to their, you know, to their towns or villages or to their palaces or to their forest groves to practice what he had taught. He taught people to look into their own minds, to look into their own hearts, because that's where the truth, where the solution can be found and not long before he passed away he gave his last long sermon and in that he was asked um, who would be his successor I think he was 80 or 81 year old and he told the people who asked him at that point to be a lamp unto themselves he said take no refuge outside yourself Take the Dharma as your refuge, take the teaching, and take what is true, what you recognize as being reality, as your refuge, as a light, and be guided by that. It's a very powerful statement, and again, it's a very powerful statement for us here, to turn back, to... Get advice to get teaching to see to understand this path as well as we can you now, learn as much as we can about it, listen to as many people as we can as long as possible, and yet to turn inwardly, to turn towards our own hearts and minds and find out for ourselves. It's a empowering statement that points right back at our own hearts and his last sentence before passing away I mentioned before was, all things are impermanent work out your own freedom through mindfulness mm-hmm. um, in the beginning of the century it seems that in many of the Buddhist countries, mostly in Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, other places like that, was mostly monastics who would really do retreats, who would do deep meditation. And generally, one assumed or it was done in a way that one had to actually develop deep con- concentration. So people almost needed to be renunciates. It's really a specialized kind of realm for those who would do just that in their life. And not many people knew about the actual practice and not many people actually practiced and not even fewer were actually going quite deep. Lay people would try to make merits offer things to monasteries to monks and nuns so they would uh, gain, make good karma for the next life so they would have more fun or better life the next life and the ones who were really ambitious they would make offerings so that they would be reborn as monks in the next life so they would actually have the right situation and then they could practice and, and uh, be liberated and, um, it's only at the turn of the century, and maybe the first few decades of the century, in places like Burma, that a number of those monks start, started to re question all that and started to talk, to look for the very few realized people who were still meditating in caves, you know, for so asking them what. The path was all about, and there's two, mostly two, great masters in Burma who went back. One went back to the text and looked through all the texts until he came upon what is called the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, and he figured that this was actually the the instructions for meditation practice. It's not that far from what you hear every morning at 9.30. It's a little bit changed in the wordings, but he looked at these teachings and he sat down and he started to practice them. And uh, being who he was, he got very deep realizations. And it's almost like he rediscovered the possibility of practice inside meditation. And there was another monk in similar situations, and he discovered too that actually it is not just a matter of going off and staying deep concentration, but there could be a practice of insight that could be useful for a lot of people. One of them first taught them to monks, and another one in the second generation mostly taught them to um, lay people. And by maybe the 50s. It was quite a movement, mostly in Burma, among many of the ordained people, but also many of the lay people, um, that one could do 10-day courses, or one could go to meditation centers and actually be, be a family person, just go there for a number of days, up to three months, and do this practice, and develop concentration, but develop as much concentration as one can in that much time and as one develops concentration already start to, to uh, apply insight and start to look into the nature of things maybe not with the kind of laser-like incredible power of concentration one would have had if one had spent you know 50 years in samadhi practice but it was possible and many Quite big centers uh, were established, like there's one place where usually between 50 and two, three hundred people are practicing, always, right now. And they come in and they stay between ten days and a month, and three months, and then they go home again. Or if they're monastic, they come from their monastery, they practice there for three months, then go back to their monasteries and they can come at another time. It's there that the number of Westerners um, that then spread out to Thailand and to Sri Lanka again and re-reformed almost this whole uh, spiritual way of being and of practicing. And that's when the Westerners came in through Peace Corps Peace Corps and other ways going to India and to Thailand and discovered that uh, there was such a practice and that's how in the last 20 years it came to the West again and it's been practiced here and many places in Europe and America and elsewhere and it's quite alive there's a, prophes- a prophecy in Burma that when h- half of the time that the Buddhist teaching would last uh, would be over I kind of Renewal would happen And a big reform movement would happen And everything would come to life again And supposedly Since it is said that it will last for 5,000 years Lasting means when the last piece of paper That has a a scripture on it Will fall to dust That's when it ends And this is half time Two and a half thousand years And there seems again Quite uh, uh, some life in the practice, many people, like us, are putting great effort into it. It's very beautiful. It's very encouraging and inspiring that this is happening. It's still happening, and we can try it for two, three minutes quietly.